You are listening to Toom Global, a Toom podcast for lifelong learning. Humans have long pondered the workings of the human brain. Indeed, evidence of holes drilled in the skulls of our prehistoric ancestors suggests that attempts to alleviate pain, cure health issues and experiment with brain function is as old as we are. We've come a long way since then, and in recent years, accelerations in technology and interdisciplinary research has led to rapid advancements in neuroscience, with exciting implications for human health. So how is this unique interface of engineering, neuroscience and medicine helping to shape the future? Joining me today, we have the fantastic Professor Josef Rauschecker, Professor at the Department of Neuroscience at Georgetown University in Washington, and an expert in the fields of physiology, biophysics, neurology, and neuroscience. Professor Rauschecker has dedicated 40 years to investigating systems and cognitive neuroscience. He's the author of numerous pertinent publications in peer-reviewed journals, and has held visiting appointments at several international institutions, including Harvard Medical School, Rockefeller University, the Salk Institute and Helsinki University of Technology. We're also delighted to number Professor Rauschecker amongst our TUM alumni, and in acknowledgement of the fantastic services he has made to neuroscience, he was named a TUM ambassador in 2018. So, Professor Rauschecker, Josef, what a pleasure it is to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John, for the generous introduction. I'm glad to be here. That's brilliant. And I think you say generous introduction. I think I, I didn't actually cover half the things uh, on your CV, Yosef. I think it's, you've had a wonderful, very sparkling career in academia and delighted to have you here with us today to, to speak a little bit more about the topic of neuroscience. It's a topic which, quite ironically, uh, might hurt the brain a little bit to think about it. So maybe just to kick us off, Yosef, maybe you could describe a little bit, you know, the discipline of neuroscience. How, how would you explain it to someone in the street? Yeah, it's easy and, and difficult at the same time, you know, to think about oneself, uh, about our brains, you know, this is who we are. And, uh, you know, so that suggests that it should be easy. But then if you go into the details and, and uh, think about uh, how the brain actually does it, you know, to control our behavior and our thoughts and our wishes and uh, our emotions, you know, there are different ways of... Uh, of, of doing this, uh, we can observe behavior, how uh, we or animals behave in certain situations. That's, you know, mostly the, the realm of, of psychology. And this is really where, where neuroscience, uh, I think, started to, to a great extent. Or we can then, you know, take measurements, as you said, you know, drill holes into the brain. This is what neurosurgeons still do these days. And, you know, in order to alleviate um, uh, disorders and, and treat disorders, um, but also, you know, to find out how, how the circuits in, inside the brain are, uh, you know, go down into the, to the molecular level, how the different transmitters, uh, the juices that flow in the brain are, are actually organized. And, and there's so much to, to do and so much to know about, about this at all these levels that, um, you know, keeps us busy. <laughs> it certainly does. And it's interesting as well, Joseph, that you, you use the word there, uh, circuits, also when describing the brain. And it reminds me a bit of our pre-brief where you talked about a book 
had originally captured your interest, I think, as a, as a student at the time, as a young, as a young researcher, called Cybernetics uh, by Norbert Wiener. And I wonder, what was it about the book, or indeed the topic, that drew you towards neuroscience, or at that time, cybernetics? Glad you remind me of that, John. This, this was a, 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 actually a, a pretty complex book, and I tried to grasp it as a, I think it was a, still a, undergrad uh, at, at maybe a tomb, you know, so it's, uh, it's such a great place where we had professors that were already interested in these kinds of uh, applications of engineering into how the brain works. And this is what I was interested already at that time as well in, in the kind of nascent field of, of neurobiology <clears throat> and cybernetics, I think was a crucial part of that. In 1948, uh, Norbert Wiener was a mathematics professor at MIT uh, came up with that term, you know, it comes from the Greek, of course, and, and means really control theory. And uh, as an engineering student, I also had control theory and found it fascinating. And, um, you know, it basically has the idea, contains the idea that uh, there are common things that go on in, in animals and machines. So what, what the brain essentially does or has to do in order to steer us through the environment and, and through life is uh, the same thing that a, that a machine, or certain machines do in, in, in sort of mechanical terms, information terms. So it was, a, it was a big idea at the time and it had a lot of influence. Now, when you open the book, it probably you know, looks and smells a little dated. And the term cybernetics has, has gotten a different meaning now. But the idea is still there when we call it now computational neuroscience or artificial intelligence, for that matter, which has now become a very modern term and is exploding. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. It's, uh, it's interesting as well, as you describe it, that, that Norbert Wiener, he took this inspiration from machines. You know, 1948, his machines were then getting, at that stage, a bit more complicated. And I think this was also the time when IBM started producing these first sort of punch card machines, you know, the first sort of right. very, very basic computers to then translate this into back into back into the biological world, so to speak, and then think, okay, well, how can we how can we apply this kind of thinking to our own brains, to the way that we work as as animals? Yeah, yeah. There was, there was of course, Turing uh, was influential in, in Britain uh, with the Turing machine, and you know there, there were you know, a lot of starting points uh, in the nineteen forties, fifties that uh, that helped to take us where we are now. Yeah. And when you talk about taking us where we are now, uh, Joseph, I think it'd be fair to say that you've you've done a fair amount of, of carrying uh, the banner for for neuroscience in in the last forty years, and you've tackled some really fascinating areas. Um, so, from some of your very earliest papers, you know, investigating vision in cats through to language in humans, and most recently, tinnitus and chronic pain. And I wonder. I mean, it's it's such a broad range of very interesting, quite different topics. Which of these has been the most challenging and, and perhaps which the most rewarding? I wonder if that's a fair question. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you would ask that, John. Um, you, you know, you, you, you start with observations mostly. You know, if, if you're interested in the world and, and in people, you just have to keep your eyes open and look around what what's goes on around you. And, and every day you observe something that is worth investigating, exploring, and, uh, you know, ultimately do a scientific inquiry on it. So the, the early work <clears throat> that I did on the visual system 
was influenced by, um, you know, a number of people. I had a young sort of very dynamic uh, mentor when I did my PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Psychiatry in Munich, uh, Wolf Singer, uh, who is still in the field right now at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Frankfurt. And, and then I, uh, you know, the, there was the nascent field of developmental neurobiology started by Hugel and Weasel at Harvard, um, who were exploring how vision develops in young animals, how we learn to see, basically. Right? So we're born, of course, with, with our eyes and with our brain there, but it's not fully programmed. So uh, when, when a young animal, uh, you know, is born and, and, and goes, walks through the world, then they, they, you know, their brain gets bombarded with all these uh, visual uh, impressions and it has to start to make sense out of it. So this was the, the topic of my PhD. I, I stuck with that for several years uh, after I finished my PhD and then I turned to the question, so what actually happens when somebody is blind? You know, there are people who are born blind or, you know, turn blind. And, you know, how if you cut, if you shut off that important input to the brain, how can they, you know, deal with that? Mm -hmm. And it turns out, amazingly, uh, blind people are able to cope with that situation. It seems like catastrophic when you first think about it. It's the most important input channel to, to the brain. Uh, we and others discovered that there is uh, a lot going on in reprogramming the brain, areas that are help us see suddenly get activated by by sounds and by touch so there's this whole compensatory plasticity as we call it uh, that that reprograms the brain and, and actually that, that earlier if you're born blind the brain has the ability to reprogram this even more rapidly and more massively than if you are, are, are get blind later in life where the plasticity is, is only limited you know, so this was another fascinating topic, which I'm still very interested in. And, um, you know, and then one, one thing came to the other, and now I've become interested in language uh, lately. You know? So this seems uh, a totally disparate field, mm. but, but it also, you know, is connected with perception and it's part of cognition, as we, as we say, it's a higher form of thinking. And actually, you're, you're beginning to answer what was going to be my next question, Yosef, which was, yeah, what what was the unifying factor behind it? But it sounds already like like you say it's perception, it's cognitive thinking in one way or the other. Yeah, um, and perhaps the big unifying factor you were very interested in it. It was something that intrigues you, and then you felt compelled to explore it in a bit more depth. Yeah, I mean, uh, in language, one of, one of the factors was uh, you know when I, I had children, um, and we were just talking about that briefly before we started this conversation. You know how. Fascinating it is, you know, to, to see a small child, even early on, you know, to start back to babble and, and make sounds that, that, you know, that sound like, like language or speech already, but uh, it's certainly very immature. But then as, as they grow older and two and three years and, and start school, you know, the system gets more sophisticated mm -hmm. and then we suddenly we speak and they speak in sentences. So, so in a way, there is this uh, thought again about development, you know, how does the influence of the environment shape what the brain is and can do, but uh, it's in a different domain. The brain is a self-organizing machine. It's something that, uh, you know, even modern computers or robots can only do in a very limited fashion. They, you know, they program themselves basically on the basis of 
what you put in. But it's something that that uh, is, is exciting to think about, you know, to have self-programming, self-organizing uh, robots or machines in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it, self-organizing, self-programming. And definitely the examples you've given yourself, I think, really illustrate that wonderfully, particularly when we think about vision, when we think about language, the way that just based upon input, the brain develops and somehow sets itself up, so to speak, in the first formative years of one's life. But maybe just to come back again, it's really interesting you phrase away, and perhaps this is an oversimplification, um, Joseph, so please do correct me if if I'm making this uh, too simple. Um, But it almost sounds particularly, you know, going back to cybernetics, as we discussed, 1948, where, you know, the thinkers at the time, Pat Norbert as well, was taking machines and thinking, okay, how we can apply this thinking to human beings, to physiology. Um, and now we're moving into an era where, like you say, and you, you touched upon this before, AI, machine learning, and robotics are the really, really hot topics at the moment. And it's almost the reverse of that process where we're now thinking, okay, how do we actually then make machines a little bit more like human beings that maybe they have some of these capabilities, like the ability to program themselves, to be able to learn in, in a more organic way? Is, is, that, is that a fair comment or is, is that a little bit too, too much of a stretch? No, no, this is exactly right what you just said, John. And this is, I think you're, you're absolutely right that this goes back to the, those days after World War II where people suddenly, uh, you know, were working on these, these questions and, and now we are reaping the benefits. You know, the field has advanced, of course, since then enormously. It's just a, a new age in that, in that respect. Absolutely. And maybe we can... Uh, dig a little bit deeper there as well, Yosef, because you're absolutely right. And I think this is something that we at Tomb are, are really proud of as well as this wonderful collaboration uh, going on between our, our two organisations, between the two universities. And particularly you mentioned the project here with Gordon Cheng, who, like you say, is one of our rock star robotics professors uh, here at Tom. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is what is this sort of joint research that you're doing? I think it's in cognitive and computational systems. Maybe you give us just a little bit more of an idea of what that looks like, what sort of areas um, you're exploring here. Well, there are a number of topics that we're working on, and uh, there are students involved. All the brilliant uh, engineering students at TUM, of course, are uh, sort of jumping on that opportunity. And uh, it started out with um, the first small project that we took on was uh, originated from um, an interest of mine in music, for example. You know, so okay. Music is sort of like language. It's, uh, it's something that happens mostly in the auditory domain, obviously. And uh, although there are you know, sign languages that, that happen in the visual domain as well, but, but uh, most of us speak uh, language in, in, in the auditory domain. We make sounds with our speech organ. And music is the same thing. You know, you have to, you know, you have to make series of sounds, you know, sequences. So uh, one of Gordon's students became interested in that uh, in that question: how the brain uh, processes sequences of sounds. For example, in something like music. And we had done some prior work with uh, functional MRI, which is one of the sort of uh, basic techniques that everybody in neuroscience is now using to look inside the brain and its brains and um, security. And uh, the, the student who incidentally came from Iran, uh, we invited him to come to Georgetown and uh, 
he unfortunately arrived right in the middle of the pandemic. So Ugh. he wasn't even, I didn't think he ever got to see the, the, the US Capitol or the White House. <laughs> he was had to sit mostly in his uh, room that, and, uh, but we were on Zoom every day and, and uh, he was uh, doing his calculations and uh, data processing and so on. And, and now we have a manuscript together. There are a couple of other students that, that we've had together and, and now we are, Gordon was just awarded a, a big grant from the Excellence Initiative, um, I believe. And, and, um, and so, you know, we'll have more of these collaborative ventures where we, where we talk about, uh, you know, like his, his uh, idea of, of uh, getting artificial skin on, on uh, robots so they can actually sense the environment. And that influences what they can do. You know, these whole uh, control circuits that are so important. And that, that was one of Lena's original ideas, is, is that you have control circuits and feedback. Yeah, I could, I could give you more examples, but let's, let's okay. leave it at that. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that I think there are two great examples. Maybe we'll come to the second one in just a second. But I find the first one also particularly fascinating. And I have a couple of follow-up questions. Um, I think the first one, which might sound quite mundane, um, is what was what was the the music that you were testing on on your subjects? Was there a specific track or was there a specific genre of music that you were trying to test for soothing qualities or because it gets people excited or maybe it's yeah, yeah. nostalgic? Yeah, yeah. thing. Uh, it, it was originally the very original experiment I did on music was actually uh, music by the Beatles. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> a good choice of band. Okay. Which I was, uh, you know, uh, of course, an enthusiastic fan of uh, as a teenager. And uh, where I discovered that I still, you know, after all these years, I still knew a lot of these tunes by heart and could mm-hmm. sing them. So th- this was the essence of, uh, of the collaboration with, with Gordon and his student. That is fascinating. And coming back to one of the points you made earlier, Joseph, about observation. You know, you can observe something, like you say, you, you kind of know inherently songs can come back to you. The lyrics seem to flow out of your mouth, even if you've not listened to the song in, in a yes, number of years. Yes, yes. So it's a journalist here in the United States of NPR, National Public Radio. He interviewed me on this, on this piece of work. You know, this was before I started the collaboration with Gordon, but it was the same. And uh, the title of that interview or the contribution was uh, the contribution of the Beatles to the understanding of the brain or the neuroscience <laughs> or something. <laughs> and then he was telling that story about, uh, about the Beatles' influence on, on, on me and, and my thinking. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure Paul McCartney would take that accolade, definitely. Yeah, yeah I should tell him when I meet him. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, we'll certainly we'll link that as well in our program notes at the end, Joseph. That sounds like a great podcast that people can explore in a bit more detail. And super fascinating because I think that's definitely something that I imagine a lot of our listeners can also relate to, that there's particular bits of music that have a very sort of special place in memory. And maybe understanding what that link is is quite important, particularly... I'd be unable to quote any studies that, that did this, but I'm sure I've read articles previously, particularly in, in patients with dementia or people who get a bit older, that when you play certain bits of music, yeah. actually it can still be very soothing for them because some, something deep inside yeah. is still linked. There's some, like you say, a circuit that emotionally uh, and maybe subconsciously is still very much linked to this language, like you explained yeah, yeah. before. No, this is absolutely true, John. This is a, a, actually a very good point that you're making there. 
it's, it's quite well known that in certain uh, cases of aphasia, you know, where people are unable to speak for whatever reason, you know, because of a stroke or because of uh, dementia, maybe uh, they're unable to speak, but then you, you play them a piece of music that they remember from their childhood or from their uh, period before they got sick. And they immediately sing along. You know, this is so amazing. You know, this is a well-known phenomenon, but it's really not well understood how mm. how suddenly the impact of music makes uh, makes them uh, uh, you know and enables them to to produce these sounds again. You know that they that they must be there in the memory that's just yeah. not up, uh, able to access them. It's super fascinating. It really is, and also interesting the techniques that you say you use, sort of MRI scans. Which, if if we explain this very much to a layperson, that this is effectively a brain scan, isn't it? When you just take a scan of the brain and you can see where there's activity within right. within the, the cerebral. On, on blood flow originally, but you know, blood flow you know, is highest in the brain when, when you have an active uh, right. neurons. Yeah. I still remember uh, here when I heard about it for the first time, you know, I was doing a surgery at NIH and one of my colleagues rushed in, have you heard? That they're able now to measure activity in the living brain, <laughs> and, and, and I'd heard about it, but not you know it was an immediate breakthrough. Mm-hmm. It was a very very exciting moment. Yeah, I can only imagine. I can only imagine for someone who at that point had already been in that area for some fifteen years to suddenly be like, oh, okay, wonderful. When can we start doing that here? Yeah, <laughs> get that over. Brilliant. And maybe just coming to this as well. Because I think it's, like you say, it's super interesting that these developments have happened in the last number of years. And I suppose if we look ahead to the future, maybe this is, again, an unfair question to put to you. If you were to predict, maybe if you were to be, you know, the Norbert Wiener of today and say, this is this is where we are just now, this is where the potential is in, in 40 years or 50 years' time. Where do you see this field moving, particularly in neuroscience? Um, and what could it potentially offer, do you think, to humans in terms of, like you say, and then we, I think you very briefly touched on this before in terms of helping people perhaps with disabilities. Yeah. yeah it's kind of an unfair question, I have to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, some of the things are, are happening in front of our eyes right now. You know, when, when we, uh, you know, have stuff like Alexa and Siri and, you know, where we are able to put what we understand about language, for example into machines now and um, you know this is all interdependent and it's, it's really happening as we speak but I remember actually attending a symposium at TUM uh, with a group of, of Korean roboticists and, and uh, neuroscientists from the Korean Academy of Sciences and there was a really visionary situation there where we talked about how robots are one day going to be able to to look after patients, you know, they will be, you know, doing a great job, you know, and, and the uh, patient will be able to speak to them and will be able to ask them to do certain things, and they will do it. And, and a shortage of, of personnel in that in that area is well known, and so I think this is going to be one of uh, one of the big applications. It's not, you know, in the sense of Norbert Wiener that that this is now a, a new discovery about how the brain works, uh, but. But it's more on the applied side, you know, that there will be uh, plenty of opportunities where we can turn these things that we've learned about the brain and, uh, you know, and implement them and, and use them for good purpose. Um, and there are numerous examples of that, I think, where we, where we can, both fields can learn from each other, 
you know, the neuroscientists will learn from from the engineers how the brain works and vice versa. And the engineers will be able to to apply what we know in neuroscience to to daily problems that they can solve. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful example as well. Um, I'm trying to remember the term, and I might get this wrong as well, but I think I've, I've read up on this too, is geriatronics, I think, is the, the care of the elderly by robots, which is super interesting. I think particularly for countries now struggling a little bit with aging populations, and it's a big challenge for the future. And absolutely, if if there's a way then, as you say, it's happening in front of our eyes now, for robots to step in and fill that gap of a caregiver, um, that could have massive implications, of course, for the quality of life that we all have uh, yeah. as we get as we get a bit older. Yeah, and there are, you know, there's a, a famous Japanese author. I forget his uh, name now. But he's a British bestseller about that topic. You know, about uh, robots enter our lives, and mm. and uh, you know, sometimes uh, the outcome is a bit scary. But uh, but I think one has to opti- be optimistic about it. When- we're not talking about Isaac Asimov, are we, Yosef? No, that was a, that was an early uh, sort of example of that. But yeah. uh, I, think, I think one of the books that was an absolute bestseller here in the United States, I don't know about Germany, was uh, Clara and the Sun, I think it was called. Clara and the Sun, okay. We'll have a look for that one. It's, uh, it's about a sort of female robot that, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to... Take away to, or to spoil the plot, yeah. Don't, don't, please don't. But that sounds really interesting. So it's, but the premise is that it's about kind of a, a future where robots have a much greater role in, in society. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, we'll dig that one out. If you could send to me that to me at the end, that would be wonderful, and we can link that as well for our listeners. But maybe rather than going for the big predictions of the next forty or fifty years, Joseph, my penultimate question to you: Are what? What are your plans for the next couple of years? You were saying before that at the moment, language is a particular area of interest for you. Yeah, another interest uh, interest of mine is in tinnitus. Everybody's heard about it, of course, but uh, it's uh, not very well understood affliction that a lot of people have. Uh, so you know, so tinnitus is an affliction that that can become very uh, onerous, and uh, you know, people can get very depressed about it mm-hmm. because they feel kind of trapped in that situation that that they can't run away from it and. Uh, can be very bar- bothersome, and uh, so so we've started a program, and I've been funded by a number of grants to to sort of tackle that because it's you know there's no cure for it. So you can't. I guess one way would be to restore these these uh, receptors in, in, the, in the ear, you know, that, but that, that's a, another very difficult proposition. But even then, you might not get rid of your, your tinnitus because it's happening in your brain. You know, this is one of those. Uh, examples of reorganization where you know you lose these uh, peripheral receptor cells in your in your hearing but what actually happens is a reorganization of your brain the brain structures that are supposed to process the input from these receptors and so it's much more complicated and then you know once it is in an advanced stage it it captures the system further processes emotions and and you know people become anxious and suicidal even and so, uh, you know, one of the groups that, that we're targeting, uh, you know, there have been a lot of uh, armed conflicts, unfortunately, where American soldiers were called to, to help in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, and so on. And so, uh, so America has a, has a big population of, of veterans, and they suffer greatly from these afflictions. Anyway, so... so um, we started to use brain imaging again, you know, to... Uh, Get to the to the 
basis of, of, of all this, and we've had some success in diagnosis and in, in, the, in understanding the mechanisms more so than the therapy. So now we're moving you know, slowly into ways of uh, you know maybe curing the disease or yeah. you know, starting to cure it. And again, there is a collaboration that uh, that um, I've started here at, at in well, here when I say here, is, I'm pointing at you at, at, <laughs> at, at, at Kilm, uh, with Marcus Schweiger originally, and, and now with Wolfgang Weber in the nuclear medicine uh, department, where we use the, the fantastic scanners that they have there as a combined PET and MRI scanner. So you know, there's hope that maybe one day we might understand this at a level that we can actually also uh, find a cure. And something that I've uh, said in a pet in in talk a couple of years ago, uh, still almost every day I get emails from people that, that are desperate yeah. for something like this. And I think it's another example you know, where, where the medicine and the medical needs are interacting with the, with the technology imaging technology in this case where I think we can do a lot of good things. Absolutely I think it's a very very honourable cause indeed Joseph. Um, and like you say I know myself people who, who suffer from tinnitus and it's it's a lot wider spread than people would maybe even think yeah, absolutely and I think you, you illustrated how complex this issue is and particularly this condition is Joseph. I think to put it back into perhaps cybernetics terms it's something that a casual observation might think it's a hardware failure where the ear is starting to suffer and degrade, but indeed it's something that's a software failure, so to speak. It's happening It's happening in the mind, it's happening in the brain. Um, so it's really, really difficult then to unpick, to understand what really is the root and where are these loops that are causing uh, this kind of this kind of problem. But yeah. super, super interesting. Like I say, very honourable cause uh, to be pursuing so I'll wish you all the very, very best, and maybe we'll have to get you back to find out a little bit more about what you discover. In, Once in this you area. have the cure for tinnitus, you can <laughs> you please come back and talk to us. That would be good. Paul Wolfgang or Barbara, you know, <laughs> then Paul McCartney will be calling you to ask if he can. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's some of his rock concerts that are to blame. Is to say. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea. Maybe we can get it as a sponsor for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So then just to come into the very, very final question uh, for today, Yosef, if our listeners were keen to find out a little bit more about the topic of neuroscience or indeed the cooperation in this area between Georgetown University and TOM, or even were keen to find a bit more about you know, vision in cats or tinnitus or any of the topics we've discussed today, what sort of resources are out there for them? What could you recommend? Oh, wow. This is another big question, actually, a, a sort of practical question. I would probably, if people are really interested, I would um, start with a, with a book uh, uh, students are using. And, and so it's, it's at a relatively basic level. And you don't have to have any particular specialized knowledge on uh, neurobiology or anything. There are a number of textbooks out there, but I think the best one is still the one by Kandel. Kandel won the Nobel Prize in, uh, in uh, medicine and physiology. And um, he wrote a textbook called Principles of Neuroscience. Principles of Neuroscience, okay. Now in his sixth edition, you know, so make sure that you recommend the sixth edition. <laughs> <laughs> the, the most up-to-date. Body yeah. of knowledge uh, you know, moves very rapidly. So it's always uh, important to stay on the ball and, and get the most recent edition. So I think that's one I would recommend. Uh, you know, it has great illustrations and it, so it makes it 
relatively easy to to understand things. Yeah. And if you're if you're sort of um, yeah at the level of uh, even undergraduate students, you know, beginning uh, student in engineering, for example, I think it would be fantastic actually for some good starting point. Engineering background, you know, because there are these chapters in there about also. Uh, uh, control, feedback, and so on, written by by experts. Well, I think that's a wonderful starting point, a really good place to direct our listeners to to begin, Yosef. And indeed, we'll pop any more resources that you think of after the podcast into our program notes, and then people can access them there. Fantastic. Then I think all that's left to say is a massive thank you. Thank you so much indeed for your time, Yosef, and your insights into what is an absolutely fascinating topic. Thank you so much, John.